0: This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast.
1: We are your study buddies for neonatology topics.
0: I'm Dr. Ben Korsha.
1: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbeau.
0: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's. Thursday, we have a uh, guest with us today to talk about IPO and ESAs and anemia. So we're very excited, aren't we, Dapha?
1: Very excited, and um, it's really helpful to have people who are kind of, you know, experts and experts in this and um, in a particular area to come review with us. So yeah. I guess without further ado, I'll, I'll just introduce. Um, Dr. Oles, um, Dr. Robin Oles is professor of pediatrics and associate division chief of neonatology at the University of Utah. She completed her undergraduate degree at Stanford University and medical training at the University of Utah. Following 23 years at the University of New Mexico. Uh, focused on fetal and neonatal hematology research. She returned to Utah in 2019 to continue her clinical and translational research, evaluating trans, decreasing transfusions um, and improved neurodevelopmental outcomes in ELBW infants treating with red cell growth factors. She's a PI of the NHLBI-funded multicenter Darby trial and the site PI of the NICHD Neonatal Research Network at Utah. So we're so pleased to have on Dr. Ols today.
0: That's right. Dr. Robin Ols, thank you so much for being on with us today.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks, you guys.
0: Um, So obviously, everybody has strong opinions about erythropoietin, Darby, and and anemia in general. And so we are very happy that you're on with us to answer a little bit some of the questions that are always being uh, brought up uh, it, it, and the, the questions that are being whispered in the halls of the NICU. <laughs> that uh, And I guess my first question to you is, obviously, uh, one of the big reasons for the use of uh, EPO and Darby is to reduce um, the transfusions that our patients are exposed to. And I guess if we wanted to be devil's advocate, somebody may say, well, you know, when we're looking at the data in these different studies, the uh, the the reduction in the number of transfusion, yes, may be statistically significant, but it's not like it's dramatic. It's like maybe like two transfusion is that such a big deal? Is it worth the investment as a unit to implement the use of ePO um, what what is your answer to to this to this question?
2: Yeah, well that that is a great question and that was uh, brought up in in some editorials, even back in the 90s when we were first studying ePO is that if you're if you're not gonna Eliminate all transfusions, then what's the use of using it? And um, the the I would say the issue over the years is that um, we absolutely have confirmed that um, red growth, uh, growth red cell growth factors in babies, either erythropoietin, which we call EPO, or darbipoietin, which we shortened to Darby, um, either EPO or Darby will decrease or, or possibly even eliminate the number of transfusions preterm babies get, even our tiniest babies, twenty three weekers, um, and so is that a good thing? I mean, is it good to get rid of transfusions or decrease transfusions? So you have to look at the uh, the flip side. What are the side effects of transfusions? And do we see any adverse effects, any short-term adverse effects or long-term adverse effects? I would say the data are still um, being collected on that in terms of things like um, transfusion-associated necrotizing enterocolitis, um, mm-hmm. issues with, uh, either increasing ROP with more transfusions, which have been shown in some papers, um, and issues with, uh, iron, uh, loads and things like that. Um, and then recently we've looked at a, a lot of our studies. Um, these are post hoc analyses for sure, just to point that out. So hypothesis generating observations, not conclusions. Um, but we're, we're seeing, a decrease in developmental outcomes. So a decrease in scores on Bailey's testing in our preterm babies who receive any transfusions compared to those that receive no transfusions. Um, Now, again, that may be a Mm -hmm. teleological argument that, well, they didn't get transfusions because they were healthier. So they're going to do better. So, Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I'm saying that the, the, we're still collecting those data Um, but I think it's important to think about transfusions as a treatment, just like we think about, um, antibiotics and we have antibiotic stewardship, you know, spreading across the country and probably being in every hospital now as a requirement. And I am the transfusion steward for our hospital. And I made up that title for myself but they accepted it, um, (laughs) For, and for all of neonatology, but, um, you know, thinking about transfusions, like you do about antibiotics, um, is this a treatment that is necessary and required? And can we document a benefit after that treatment? So those parts of it, I think, are really important. So um, and getting back to your question, um, do you can you use ESAs? Can they decrease, treat, decrease transfusions? Absolutely. It's important to do that. Um, it's cheaper to do that. And there are papers to show that. Um, and so I am uh, a proponent of using red cell transfu- red cell growth factors in babies.
0: Yeah, and that's something that we discussed on our show uh, the prior week, where transfusions, I think, have become routine in the NICU, but they're not benign. And there are still possibilities of uh, transfusion-related infections, gut injury, lung injury, and, and all these uh, sometimes go unnoticed. And, and Dr. Saxon-House actually spoke to us about really the need to continue counseling families before each mm-hmm. transfusion because of all the risks associated with it. And we do get consent from these families. So it would be... Uh, it would be a bit foolish to ignore um, all, all the risks that are still associated with transfusion. I wanted to touch on uh, a topic that you mentioned in the case of transfusion, but that is also relevant in the case of uh, erythropoietin. And, and and that's one of the jobs that we're trying to do with this series of podcasts is that so many papers sometimes are being published that for people who are busy and don't have the time, it could get confusing as to where's the evidence today. And and in the case of the Cochrane reviews that have looked at the early, uh, there's actually two Cochrane reviews, one on the early use of EPO and the late use of EPO. Um, it, it, in those Cochrane reviews, In one of these editions, there was an association that was brought up between the use of EPO and increased ROP, and that eventually went away. But I wanted to get your uh, opinion as to uh, what is the evidence and should people be worried about ROP when they're implementing the use of uh, EPO to reduce transfusion in the NICU? Um, I
2: I would say that um, the concern about ROP is... is, um, we have shown that that is actually not a, uh, not a concern, uh, and in fact, in the uh, most me- recent meta-analysis, if you include the most recent studies, which include the, the peanut trial, um, the trial out of China, um, the, the trial in um, Switzerland and Austria that was performed, um, if we include those infants, and we include the information about ROP in those infants, Um, The weight is actually on um, the babies that receive placebo versus EPO. So those babies that receive placebo, the p-value is 0.07 in favor of receiving EPO in terms of decreasing ROP. So you may actually decrease ROP with early EPO or early Darby Poetin. Um, And so the issue of of red cell growth factors causing ROP should not be an issue for those providers that are considering using red red cell growth factors.
0: That's mm-hmm. huge. I think this is this is yeah. critical. Cool. All right, that, that sorry okay. you want to say something.
1: No, no, that's I mean that's that's very valuable for us to review, especially, you know, if we have a lot of trainees listening. Um, and it can be so confusing to to be, you know, feeling like you're getting mixed data or partial data um, and so this is really a helpful review. Um, we also talked about um EPO and um neuroprotection in the peanut trial and um, maybe you can speak a little
2: bit to your experience with that right. as well. Right. And, and and including that in the heal trial although not in preterm infants. Yes. So two two large NIH funded multicenter trials uh well designed absolutely. Outstanding investigators, outstanding environments, Um, and neither showed any sort of benefit of ESA treatment, uh, erythropoiesis stimulating agents treatment, in those patients that received uh, were in the treatment arm. Um, Both of these studies, and again, I'm I'm going to I'm going to be going out a little bit on a limb here to let you know that uh, both of these studies used a higher dose of EPO. They used what is considered a neuroprotective dose of EPO, uh, a a thousand units per kilogram dosing. Uh, In peanut, we gave that every other day for a total of six doses. And then we switched over to what we consider hematopoietic dosing, which is 400 units Mm -hmm. per kilogram, three times a week. In HEAL, they used a total of seven doses of a thousand units per kilogram, um, five doses over seven days. Both of those doses were determined to be as I mentioned, neuroprotective, but these are in animal models. So these are animals that are getting these doses, and then um, they're exposed to some sort of injury, neurologic injury, and looked at the outcomes. So in the animals, it, it worked great. but I have to say that I, I would um, I would hypothesize that a um, erythropoietic dose, a dose that stimulates red blood cell production, is appropriate and has the best evidence to provide neuroprotection in our preterm babies. And that is evidenced by our previous study looking at EPO and Darby versus placebo in preterm babies and then the, the data out of China as well. Um, there were some concerns about that study, but still 800 babies that um, were less than 32 weeks gestation were enrolled. And those babies had significant improvements in, in neurodevelopmental outcomes and scores. We currently are in the process of completing the um, developmental outcomes of our babies in a Darby study that's done through the Neonatal Research Network. Um, so this was 650 babies enrolled that were uh, between 24 and 28 weeks gestational age. And we are looking at those, we're doing our neurodevelopmental outcomes in those babies um, to determine the primary outcome variable to see if their cognitive scores are higher, their Bayley cognitive scores are higher. And we're using um, what we consider an erythropoietic dose uh, of Darby, 10 micrograms per kilogram given once a week. Um, So I would say that I'm not, um, I'm not sure why uh, both Peanut and Heal did not show improvements in developmental outcomes. Um, I hypothesized that it might've been a dose that was higher than what was needed And um, there is a dose response curve that it does not just keep going up and up and up. So more is not always better. And in this case, more might not have been better for these babies. And uh, time will tell to see if we can show an improvement. If we show the same cognitive improvement um, in our Darby babies that we showed in our original study, where babies had an almost 10 point cognitive increase in their Bailey cognitive score compared to the placebo group. Amazing,
1: yeah. amazing. And there are, there are some additional benefits to using Darby for people who aren't familiar with it that, um, like you mentioned, the dosing, but as compared to three times a week doing once a week, right. so it would be great if that was an opportunity. Right. And
2: we're actually in the process of, of looking at it once every other week. Um, in adults and in pediatric patients uh-huh. even better. Darby can be given once every 2 to 3 to 4 weeks even. There are some adults mm-hmm. that are on yeah. conservative therapy every once a month. So in babies even if we could give it every other week, um, you know, that's half mm-hmm. the cost, half That'd the sticks and if we see the same reticulocyte response in those babies then then we're going to be moving to once every other week dosing. Mm
0: mm-hmm that's great definitely you wanted to go to you wanted to ask something about the rop go ahead
1: yeah no dr rolls i feel like we moved away but uh, my fault <laughs> from the <laughs> rop uh, discussion and before we got started recording you were you were telling us maybe a little bit more information about um where the controversy was with that and and why um we you know why? Why the the data in the Cochrane reviews should be taken with a grain of salt? I guess. Yeah,
2: it, it's hard because you know the Cochrane reviews are are is our Bible for neonatology, um, specifically the abstracts, not so much the entire thing. <laughs> but um, so it's hard to go against the Bible. But um, I have to say that when that Cochrane review was published in two thousand six, and um, I actually even reviewed that Cochrane review. It's so funny, and I was offered to write a letter to the editor. Has anybody ever read a letter to the editor of the Cochrane Reviews? Have you ever heard of it? I... Do you... We do. We okay. do all the all right. time on I, the podcast. I didn't even know they had them. But anyway, um, <laughs> so the concern was that um, for that study, that study it, it really came out against Depot and that there was this, this big push that it, it caused ROP so you can't use it. And the issue was that um, there was a single center study out of Italy That enrolled babies, randomized them to EPO or control, uh, and included um, uh, adequate iron dosing um, at the time for those babies, and found, in fact, that there was an increased incidence of ROP in the babies randomized to the EPO group compared to the control group. And so, in that one study, the the weight of that study um, created a significant difference in the treated EPO treated babies that uh, led to the conclusion that. that ROP may be a risk factor if you use EPO. But in fact, the, um, first of all, it was a single-center study. That's, that single-center still uses EPO to this day in their babies. Um, secondly, the, the study was um, placed into the early EPO group when actually it's, it's a late EPO study, and, and I contacted the the author who had not been contacted by the Cochrane reviewers, and he said actually that that EPO was started on day ten, an average of day ten of life, which puts it out of the first week of life. Um, and so, uh, not to say that using late EPO is bad either, but I'm just saying that um, the study wasn't even in the in the right group to begin with. But um, in addition, only about um, just a little bit over a quarter of the uh, babies had information about ROP that was reported. Okay, so a quarter of the babies that were reviewed in all of those studies that Cockburn reviewed. Um, And when we went back and looked at um, studies that had been um, initiated after that review, looked at more detailed ROP information in those babies and really tripled the number of babies that we had information on. Um, In fact, um, there was absolutely no difference in the groups in the incidence of ROP and as, Additional studies were added to those analyses. um, The most recent being just adding the the peanut data, which there was again absolutely no difference between groups in the incidence of any uh, level of ROP. The the weight now is towards uh, babies that are receiving EPO in terms of decreasing ROP, and so babies that are in the placebo groups um, are trending to have a greater incidence of ROP than those that are receiving EPO, and. And biologically, it actually, there is some plausibility to that as well, um, that EPO may improve. um, Obviously, red cell mass may improve oxygen availability to tissues. um, And in those instances, you may um, have a a, a change in the whole mechanism, which is driven by hypoxia and HIF1 um, um, stimulation of gene expression. So there is biologic plausibility to that. and, And it's what we've always thought about when we use EPO in babies and we think about uh, blood cell production and and blood vessel production as well.
1: Thank you. That's really um, helpful. And I'm actually, I'm glad that you mentioned timing um, because uh, we were hoping you might be able to share, for example, in your unit, when do you guys start EPO? What is your protocol? uh, Yeah, that has, yeah.
0: That has been something that many people have asked. When do you start it? Do you start it mm-hmm. on the first day of life? Do you wait a little bit? And 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 that's something that I think a lot of people are wondering um, what your opinion might be on on the timing. And maybe is that timing contingent on the patient population? Like, is there a specific patient mm-hmm. population that gets it very soon, another that you, you wait? I mean, I'm just,
2: yeah. I'm just curious. Well, here us. here in um, Utah, we actually use Darby Poetin. Darby Poetin is on our formulary, so we don't use EPO here. When I was at the University of New Mexico, we had EPO on the formulary, so we used EPO. Um, but um, for, the, for the first time in, in my career, having studied EPO since uh, starting in 1989 um, and using it in babies since 1990, um, I, we actually wrote guidelines. So be, before these guidelines, I was fine about doing placebo controlled trials. I really don't have the equipoise now to write up another placebo controlled study Mm -hmm. using red blood cell growth factors in babies to stimulate red blood cell production and decrease transfusion. So again, you know, the using it for red cell um, production is key. And I think we've confirmed that. um, Absolutely. Um, but we use Darby Poetin. We use it in the first week of life, as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. For those uh, units that use EPO, you can add EPO to TPN if your pharmacist is familiar with that. And that's how we used it in um, New Mexico, um, just adding it to the TPN as soon as TPN was ordered. And that dose is 200 units per kilogram each day. Um, and that works great to stimulate red blood cell production, to keep up the stimulation of red cell production that the babies have right before they were born. Um And here, uh, we use Darby in the first week of life. Um, We use the dose of 10 micrograms per kilogram. As I mentioned, we're going to be studying it every other week. Um, So just randomizing babies to receive it every week versus every other week with a sham dose in between in that week between. Um, But we use it right away. We use it for babies, uh, for sure, for babies less than 1,000 grams or extremely low birth weight, extremely low gestational age babies. Um, Even in those babies that um, are a little bit larger than 1,000 grams, if those are critically ill babies that we know will have significant phlebotomy losses in the first week of life. Um, We'll use it for those babies. We can use it in um, babies, any babies that have acute hemorrhage before birth, whose somatic rate is significantly lower, um, who are at risk for transfusion. Okay. So any baby that has had um, an in utero hemorrhage, phenomatonal hemorrhage, or has lost blood after delivery or during delivery, um, uh, babies that um, will be undergoing surgery for congenital anomalies, okay, so babies with gastroschisis, omphalocele, congenital diaphragmatic hernia—all those babies, um, our babies are at increased risk for receiving transfusions in the first weeks of life. For all those, all of those babies can benefit from a red cell growth factor in terms of just getting them to make their own red blood cells, so that we can decrease the number of transfusions we give them. And then we also have um, significant guidelines for iron supplementation, which is a Another area that's uh, being studied even more and more as the years go on, mm-hmm. um, looking at the different iron indices that we can evaluate. Um, and then we'll use um, Darby Poetin in our babies through about 34 weeks gestation. And it's not um, an absolute cutoff for some babies that uh, have significant respiratory support, who have um, hematocrites still in the mid 20s or high 20s, um, who we feel are still at risk for a transfusion if we mm-hmm. stop EPO or Darby at that time, we may continue it for another few weeks. So we want to get them out of that window where, you know, they have, they get their immunizations and they have some A's and B's that night. And so someone sends a CBC, right? Mm -hmm. And on the CBC, the hematocrit is 26%. And someone says, well, we need to give them blood tonight, Mm -hmm. you know? And so for those nocturnal transfusions, we want to get them out of that window, get them away Mm -hmm. from that concern (laughs) so that we know that when we stop EPO or Darby, we know that they're, hematocrit will drop down before the endogenous EPO starts kicking in and they start making their own EPO and start simulating their own red blood cells again. Um, So getting through that window, we want to make sure that if there's any risk at all, we'll just continue EPO for another few weeks. But for a lot of our babies, it's amazing using Darby here. Um, We'll have babies who um, are 32 weeks gestation whose hematocrit is 42%. I mean, that's unheard of, right? I mean, Mm. That we we never saw that before, so we've been able to maintain hematocrits in the mid thirties to high thirties in these babies all the way through gestation um, while they're growing in our in our NICU.
0: Yeah, and 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 Amazing. to to uh, jump on what something you've said is, it's critical, and you've described this very well in your papers that mm-hmm. you you can start these ESAs, but you need to have. Uh, proper uh, iron supplementation, vitamin supplementation, because obviously if you don't have all the ingredients to make the red blood cells, you, you're not going to do a, a yeah. good job. So um, I think that was critical. I wanted to ask you one more question because you've mentioned this. I mean, the Cochrane reviews have discussed this issue of, of high dose versus low dose, and that for uh, anemia purposes, really there's no need for uh, a high dose of, of erythropoietin or uh, for erythropoietin, that's what we're talking about. But I'm wondering if, in your opinion, uh, you've mentioned um, a, a hematopoietic dose of EPO, but is there like a dose? Uh, what would be for you the range of that dose? Because I mean, I've 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 heard a lot of different things. You've mentioned uh, 400 uh, 400 units per kilo, but I mean, what about? Would, what about lower doses? I mean, would that be as effective or, or is there a, a floor that people should not cross?
2: Uh, a lower dose. Um, so mm-hmm. you, you could test a lower dose Then we've used 400, um, based on, you know, not based on, uh, multiple studies of pharmacokinetics because it's really about the erythrokinetics in, in EPO. And just to give you an example of that, Um, In adults, uh, EPA was, pharmacokinetics were detailed by the um, investigators and by the companies that produced it. And they determined that it should be given every other day or three times a week for for patients who are requiring dialysis. And um, it got to a point where the patients were like, you know, we don't want to get three shots a week. And so it was really more pragmatic than anything else that um, their investigators just said, okay, let's try it once a week. So you actually can give EPO once a week. We've been giving it three times a week, but you can give it once a week. You're going to get um, you know, red cell factor stimulation, and you're gonna get progenitors that, that differentiate into red cells, and you're gonna increase your red cell mass, even though you're changing it. So we, we did a study where we just took the three doses and squished it into one dose and gave it once a week, and gave sham doses for the other two weeks. And we, gave, we got the same uh, red cell response. We got the same reticulocyte response in those babies. Um, and so that's where we think we might be able to go with Darby every other week as well. So you could, you could test 250, I guess. I, I think um, we do know that the clearance is much more rapid in term babies and especially in preterm babies. And the volume of distribution is enormous. So those two things really change that dosing requirement from what you might see in some sort of term infant or toddler studies, if you look at some of the, um, you know, the nephrology uh, literature, um, looking at um, babies with end-stage renal disease or toddlers with end-stage renal disease who are getting red cell growth factors, those doses are a little bit lower. But definitely in in our preterm babies, we we need a higher dose because it's just cleared. It's just cleared so much more rapidly. Um, So 250, I probably wouldn't get down to 250 in a preterm baby. There are some places that use 300. There's places that use 300 every other day. There's, there's a kind of a range for, um, there's kind of a range in terms of what the exact um, dosing schedule should, should be. Um, and I would say if, if you want to use, I'm not sure what the benefit would be of changing from you know 300 to 250 or 400 to 250. Um, in a preterm baby because you're already dealing on at the limits of what you're able to get out of the vial. I mean, the lowest concentration is 2000 units per mil for EPO. And, um, so even then you, you might have a baby that gets, you know, 0.15 mils a shot or, you know, and if you give it, if you give it IV, that that's an even different conversation that we can have later. But, um, so I don't know if there's any benefit to going, dropping the dose down a little bit more than below 400 three times a week, but we can, we're, we are investigating some other dosing schedules for Darby and, and, uh, stay tuned for that.
0: That's that's great.
2: Thank you. Um,
1: and, and you, we're getting, uh, over time. Oh, okay. I, I have myself a few sure. questions and I'm sure Ben has more questions. We could do this probably for okay. an hour. Um but we um, we like to leave, especially people who might be interested um, in doing, uh, you know, hematologic research in the NICU, maybe some of our um, trainees. Um, you've already uh, alluded to some of the up and coming work, um, but really some um, gaps in study where people could maybe find a, um, a home for their for their research um, in the next,
2: say, five to ten years. Yeah. Well, I think there's, um, you know, you, you guys probably know this, every study that you do leads to three new questions and three new studies. Mm-hmm. And certainly with red cell growth factors in babies, we are, we are continuing to study, you know, um, how much do they need? Um, what sort of schedule would be I- I- ideal for each population of infants that we deal with? The sick premature baby, the extremely low birth weight baby, the baby with surgical issues that um, is going to be. Uh, long-term NPO um, are babies that um, are chronic in the unit with um, with chronic lung disease that are, are continuing to have phlebotomy losses and and have the anemia of chronic lung disease. So that is that actually is a, something that we we've, we've determined. Um, there's a lot of different populations that we can use these red cell growth factors in. Are we going to see any sort of neurodevelopmental improvements in these babies? And w- when I when I talk about red cell growth factors to uh, different groups. Um, I, I really like to emphasize the fact that even though there is biology around EPO and Darby in terms of connecting to EPO receptors in the brain on actual neurons and oligodendrocytes and we in animal models, lots of preclinical models, we've seen improvements in um, brain growth and decrease in brain injury and brain recovery all these things we've shown in baby, in in animal models. In babies, we've been able to show improvements in cognitive outcome based on developmental tests. Of course, we're not doing any brain bi- biopsies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm convinced that it's not just the biology of EPO and how it works in the brain, connecting to receptors, improving brain growth. It is a combination of three things. Number one is the biology. Number two is that it increases red cell mass. You have more red cells. And so you have more oxygen availability for whatever that means to you, okay? there With the mm-hmm. greater hemoglobin comes greater oxygen availability. Now, whether that oxygen gets to the tissues, that's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't say right. delivery. I never say oxygen delivery to tissues. It's oxygen availability. But the third thing is that you are decreasing transfusions. And I really believe that that is an important thing we need to do. We need to be good transfusion stewards for our babies. Um, and I think the combination of those things and some other things that we haven't even determined yet um, are all um, focused towards improving neurodevelopment outcomes in our babies. And I'm sure that iron and the other supplements that we are including in our treatment um, play a role in this as well. And, and that's all new research that people can get into as well as looking at iron indices and, and are we using the right dose of iron. I can tell you just Being a part of the the peanut trial and and helping design that study, um, that a lot of the of the the sites that we did peanut in had actually never used EPO, uh, never used iron in their preterm babies, had never Mm -hmm. supplemented their babies with iron. It was amazing Mm -hmm. how many places were like, oh, you have to give some iron. We'd like you to give some iron. It actually wasn't part of the protocol. It was just a it was a suggestion to do these things. Places are like, oh, yeah, we don't we don't supplement iron at all. And sometimes when they go home, wow. we'll send them home on a multivitamin with iron. But so the kids weren't wow. getting iron at all. So, yeah. So th- okay. I, I would say that, um yeah, just the use of iron in and of itself has been a major change and improvement for a lot of our babies. And, and again, the story is is still being written on 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 those studies in babies. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this was great. This was very helpful. Uh, And again, like I said, we still have more questions. I know that we didn't. Oh,
2: I'm. You know what? I told you I could talk
1: about this all day. (laughs) (laughs) This was great. This was Um, great.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sure. All, so much for, for making the time. I think I hope that we've piqued the interest of our audience and that they will uh, go and seek out. I mean, we've, we've referenced many of your papers on the, the page for this uh, week's episodes, obviously, because you've been so prolific in this field, but you've written so much textbook chapters and so on. So uh, I am sure people will seek out your work. And uh, thank you very much for making Thanks. the time.
2: Thanks for having me, you guys.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to Nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.